Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us. Today, our guest is a return guest that we've had on several times because he is quite the expert and very, very articulate when it comes to talking about energy issues, our transition to renewable energy. I love having him on. His name's Richard Heinberg, and he's with the Post Carbon Institute. And I'm thrilled to have him on because we're going to be talking about a controversy that's been brewing uh, in the scientific community about our nation's transition to renewable energy. There's kind of been uh, a fisticuffs, so to speak, going on between two groups of scholars. Um, And Richard is going to lay it out for us so that we can understand what's going on and most importantly, how it could impact us. So welcome back to Go Green Radio. Richard, I'm so glad to have you on the show. Thank you, Jill. It's, It's a pleasure to be speaking with you again. Well, let's begin by talking about the paper that Mark Jacobson and his colleagues published in a journal called The Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. That was back in December of 2015. And I'd like for you to start by telling us who Mark Jacobson is so that we can kind of understand why his paper was so influential. Right. Well, Mark Jacobson is professor of civil and environmental engineering at Stanford University. And uh, he has a, a long background as a, uh, a scientist. He's published papers on uh, the effects on climate and air pollution of soil moisture, irrigation, agriculture, uh, effects of black and brown carbon and other aerosol constituents on regional climate, air pollution, uh, high-resolution aerosol evolution near the point of emission, and so on. I mean, uh, several several papers on each of these subjects. So he's he's a, a certainly competent and very well-respected scientist, and. Um, his main claim to fame in recent years has been his publication with uh, several co-authors of roadmaps for uh, powering the world as a whole, uh, the United States as a whole, each of the 50 um, uh, uh, states of the United States. And... Um, uh, mm-hmm. All of, all of those on solar and wind and uh, hydropower. So he he has he's he's showing us how we can transition away from fossil fuels to using mostly solar and wind power and doing so affordably. Right. And now the goal of this particular study. Um, Of course, it had to do with transitioning to renewable energy, but there have been a lot of those. What gap in analysis did his report back in December of 2015 seek to fill? What was the goal of this particular study? Uh, Well, the the one that was published in 2015 uh, is called Low-Cost Solution to the Grid Reliability Problem with 100% Penetration of Intermittent Wind, Water, and Solar for All Purposes. So um, there have been plenty of studies on various aspects of the energy transition uh, on how uh, solar and wind could uh, provide uh, more power, how to 
uh, reduce the effects of the intermittency of wind and solar and so on. What Jacobson did with this paper and, and some of his others was to attempt to show how we could get literally 100% of our energy from wind, water, and solar. So he is excluding uh, nuclear power from the mix and also bioenergy of all kinds, including uh, biofuels and also um, burning um, wood chips and so on for um, for either heat or electricity. So this is really the most ambitious um, proposal that's that's been published in terms of a transition to all solar and wind with also some hydropower in the mix. Talk to us about the conclusion the report reached regarding a full transition to renewable energy sources. I know that it was a very unique and uh, kind of special <laughs> conclusion, the one that had not been published, you know, by anyone else before. So help us, those of us who are lay people in the field, understand the conclusions that they reached in this report. Well, uh, generally speaking, most previous studies of the transition have uh, come to the conclusion that uh, uh, full reliance on wind and solar would be quite expensive and difficult from an engineering perspective. And the problem, of course, is that wind and sun are uh, variable or sometimes called intermittent sources. The sun isn't always shining. The wind isn't always blowing. So how do we make up for that? And there are basically three ways with um, energy storage, with uh, source redundancy. In other words, you have to build out way more production capacity than you're actually likely to need on most occasions because on some occasions you're going to need that, that backup because, you know, the sun won't be shining or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and the third is demand management, just changing how we use energy so that it's timed uh, for when it's available. And each of those comes with a cost. So even if the solar panels and wind turbines themselves are, uh, are re- reducing in cost, as they are, um, when you look at the in- entire system, and, uh, and especially if the penetration of wind and solar is very high, if the percentage of total energy we're getting from these sources is very high, then the system cost uh, tends to be very large. Now, this, this was the conclusion of other uh, researchers. Uh, Jacobson and his co-authors came to a very different conclusion. They, uh, they found or claimed to find a pathway um, for energy storage and grid stabilization that was affordable. And one of the ways it was affordable was by taking into account the full costs of fossil fuels, not just what we're actually paying to pump oil out of the ground or dig coal out of the ground, but the full societal costs of using these mm-hmm. fuels, um, the, uh, the uh, lung disease from air pollution caused by uh, burning coal, for example, is, turns out to be a very high number. And when that's factored in, of course, that, that makes coal power uh, much more expensive. Uh, so by comparing his 
plan with uh, with current costs and projected costs of fossil fuels on a society-wide basis, uh, he was able to show uh, or claim to show that the wind, water, and sun future would be uh, more affordable than our business-as-usual uh, current energy paradigm. Gotcha. Now, how exactly did the report deal with issues like the intermittency of wind and solar? And I will also say, those of us in California know that hydro can also be intermittent when we're in a drought. That's <laughs> uh, right. Because, uh, you know, we... At, at one point, our state was getting 17 or 18 percent of our um, electricity uh, generation from hydro, but that was not the case during the drought. So um, how did this report deal with uh, the need for energy storage and what, what types of technology uh, did they recommend for that? Right. Well, two primary pathways. One is hydrogen. So when, when the sun is shining, when, you know, at noon on a really sunny day, you're going to be getting actually more electricity than the system needs. So take some of that surplus electricity and use it to, uh, to hydrolyze water, to split it into hydrogen and oxygen. And, uh, of course, the oxygen goes up into the atmosphere, but then the hydrogen can be captured and compressed into containers and stored for use later, either to generate electricity or for other industrial purposes, to power machinery or for transportation or something like that. That's one pathway. The other pathway is to use the surplus electricity to create heat and to heat water or salt or some other medium uh, that's stored underground. And, uh, and that heat storage can be maintained for very long periods of time. And then when it's needed, the heat can be used to, um, to run a generator to produce electricity again. So this is called UTES, Underground Thermal Electric Storage. And um, the, uh, the Jacobson study relies on um, a great deal of this, um, which we'll be talking about, I think, a little bit more later on in the program. Right. Now, how has this paper, since it was published, it's been out for, you know, year and a half, almost two years, what impact has it had thus far on public policy? Well, in terms of actual public policy, um, probably not a great deal, but it has had an enormous impact in, uh, in the political realm, I would say, and in, in terms of uh, uh, many people's understanding of uh, the, the renewable energy transition. Um, Jacobson's plans have been uh, touted by a number of celebrities, including Leonardo DiCaprio and Mark Ruffalo. And uh, Bernie Sanders uh, referenced the, uh, the Jacobson plans uh, during his presidential campaign. And so there, there are a great many people out there now who have been exposed second or third hand to Jacobson's plan, who who believe on, on that basis that really the only thing preventing a rapid transition to an all solar and wind energy uh, system for our country is just, uh, you know, political... Um, 
well, uh, what's the word? The, the Will. <laughs> yeah. Corruption, perhaps, the, the influence of the fossil fuel industries or just a, a desire by some policymakers uh, not to have that transition take place, that there's no real uh, engineering or practical reason why we couldn't have a full transition to to solar and wind. Right. Well, this is all very interesting, and we're going to examine the flip side of this argument after this quick break. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all tune in. And if you're just joining us, let me catch you up. Our guest today is Richard Heinberg, and he's a senior fellow of the Post Carbon Institute and is regarded as one of the world's foremost advocates for a shift away from our current reliance on fossil fuels. If you're interested in learning more about the Post Carbon Institute, I would encourage you to open a new tab in your web browser and go to www postcarbon.org and there you'll see all the good work that they're doing you can also find out more about Richard himself and um, I'm so glad that you're on the show with us Richard to talk us through this controversy that's been broiling for the past few months Um, we just finished in the last segment talking about a paper that's gotten a lot of attention from Mark Jacobson and now we're going to talk about the flip side Um, in June of 2017 this year a group of scientists published a report 
criticizing the Jacobson report. And I'd like for you to help us understand at the beginning the credentials of some of the scientists who were involved in this rebuttal report. Right. Uh, well, the the rebuttal report was uh, lead authored by Christopher Clack, who's at uh, the Earth System Research Laboratory of National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration in, in Boulder. But he had 20 co-authors, uh, some of whom are uh, you know, more or less familiar. Ken Caldera is, is very widely known in the uh, uh, Energy World Department of Global Ecology, Carnegie Institution of Science in Stanford. Uh, so uh, from the same um, uh, campus as Mark Jacobson. And uh, Dan Kamen is also uh, extremely um, well known in in these worlds, uh, who's at uh, UC Berkeley. Um, but there, um, there, there are twenty of these co-authors, and uh, and many of them have a um, a, a professional um, association with. Uh, renewable energy in, in one way or another as researchers or, or in, in some other respect. So it would be wrong to, to assume that the criticism of Jacobson's plan for uh, transition to 100% solar and wind is just coming from uh, people from the nuclear industry or from the fossil fuel industry. That's, that's, that's not a fair characterization of, of this group of scientists. I think that's a very important point uh, because I think the knee-jerk reaction uh, from folks who were very impressed with and and put a lot of faith in the Jacobson report, that was their first criticism. Oh, these folks are just shills of the, you know, the petroleum-based industry or the nuclear industry. And I think the point that you just made is very important um, that they're That's not a fair characterization. Now, the Clack report asserts that relying on 100% wind, solar, and hydroelectric power could make climate mitigation more difficult and more expensive than it needs to be. And Richard, I'd love for you to talk to us about how the Clack report supports this assertion. Well, the the authors of the Clack report, generally speaking, are advocates of a more diversified energy mix, and I, I think that's really the core of their um, criticism of of the uh, Jacobson approach. Um, they see the intermittency of solar and wind as being a, a serious problem at very high levels. Of penetration. In other words, you know, the first uh, 20, 30, even 50 percent of total electricity that we get from solar and wind are relatively easy to uh, incorporate in the energy mix because when sun isn't shining and wind isn't blowing, we have other things to back those up. But when we get closer to 80 or 90 or 100 percent of our uh, grid electricity coming from solar and wind, that intermittency becomes a huge problem, and we have to have uh, enormous redundancies or enormous storage. And so they're they're essentially saying that's uh, that's unrealistic. And if we're going to have a reliable uh, electricity grid, we need more diversity in sources, including sources that are more. 
uh, more reliable that are you know you can count on 24 hours a day um, uh, 365 days a year actually of course no uh, energy source is completely um, reliable in that sense but uh, certainly solar and wind are, are much less so than uh, than say hydro or nuclear or natural gas or coal or uh, biopower of uh, s- uh, several kinds. Mm-hmm. And and the Clack report does fault the Jacobson report for failing to include the benefits that could be derived from nuclear and bioenergy. And so I guess I have a two-part question for you, Richard. First of all, um, what benefits does the CLAC report state that we could get from nuclear and bioenergy? You started to touch on that just a moment ago. Um, But the second part of the question is, why did the Jacobson report exclude those technologies, nuclear and bioenergy in particular? Well, the the assumption, of course, for for everyone in this conversation is that we're moving away from fossil fuels because they uh, they produce carbon emissions, which in turn uh, result in in climate change. So, if there are other energy sources besides solar and wind that don't produce uh, large amounts of carbon and therefore climate change, then we should be considering them as well. Um, well, the the authors of the Clack report include nuclear in that category. They believe that um, we you know we have uh, nuclear power up to a point today, and there's no point in just writing that off because that makes the problem even harder to solve. They also say um, if we use bioenergy growing uh, energy crops, um, woody crops that we could uh, burn for electricity. Uh, We could do that in in such a way as to capture the CO2 uh, in the combustion process and then bury the CO2. And uh, this would actually, over time, remove carbon from the atmosphere. This is called bioenergy with carbon capture and storage, or BECCS, and this is a this is an energy pathway that's uh, not just being discussed in the CLAC report, but uh, much more widely. The IPCC, the International um, Commission on Climate Change, it, it talks a great deal about BECCS and, and relies on it uh, a great deal in some of its modeling. So um, these also, of course, are uh, sources of energy that are more controllable, less intermittent than solar and wind. So, uh, Clack and his colleagues are saying, "Well, why not include those?" Mm-hmm. Why didn't Jacobson include those? I mean, does he have some, or he and his colleagues have something against nuclear and bioenergy? I, you know, what what's the what's the answer? Right. Well, there are arguments against both nuclear and um, bioenergy with carbon capture. Uh, Nuclear, uh, many energy uh, experts are souring on nuclear energy because of uh, its high cost and high risk. Um, And this is not just an academic point. If you look around the world right now, most countries are in the process of reducing their reliance on nuclear energy. There are some exceptions to that. Uh, mm-hmm. China is probably the most uh, most important of those exceptions. But even France 
um, which is one of the most nuclearized countries on on the planet, is uh, is actually starting to move away from nuclear power. As is Germany, as is Britain. Here in the United States, we've had four, only four new nuclear reactors in in the process of being commissioned and built in the last few years. And two of those were just canceled because of cost overruns. And, of course, we saw the Fukushima disaster in Japan a few years ago, and that's, that's part of what has soured uh, policymakers on nuclear. Mm-hmm. So that's, I, uh, that's the reason that, that Jacobson didn't include nuclear in his, uh, in his proposal. As for bioenergy, well, bioenergy... Um, entails using land, uh, arable land, for growing energy crops. And uh, let's face it, we have a, a growing human population that needs more food, so the idea of using uh, arable land for energy rather than food for people is problematic, not just from a humanitarian point of view, but also from an ecological point of view. We're talking about increasing the human footprint on uh, on the globe when we're already reducing the habitat of other species to the point that we're seeing uh, what many scientists are calling the beginning of the sixth extinction. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's that's not because we're hunting these animals down and killing them. It's because we're taking away their their living space. So there, there are good arguments against uh, increasing nuclear and, and bioenergy, but, uh, but the CLAC report, uh, the authors of the CLAC report are generally in favor of, of using uh, some of, of those energies to balance out solar and wind. Mm-hmm. And the CLAC report seems to assert that um, a rigid adherence to the Jacobson report could lead to some pretty serious mistakes in policy making and investments. And I'd love for you to help us understand this a little bit more, Richard. Well, they suggest that Jacobson and his co-authors um, made some serious errors, uh, modeling errors and errors in assumptions. Um, the assumptions that they make with regard to the, the actual cost of energy storage, um, the, the CLAC authors contend, are uh, completely unrealistic. Um, and they point to uh, several tables in the Jacobson um, report which use different assumptions with regard to the costs of energy storage, and those differences, of course, end up being um, uh, favorable to the conclusions that the report reaches. Uh, The amount of underground thermal energy storage that's assumed is just uh, staggering. Uh, Almost every home, office, uh, commercial building would have to have its own underground thermal uh, storage. Uh, the uh, Jacobson report assumes a hundred thousand times more hydrogen production than we currently have, and it assumes hydropower on the scale of like a hundred times the flow of the Mississippi River. So the Clack authors oh, say, wow. "Look, this is just unrealistic. You know, you've you've made assumptions here, and you've used uh, these assumptions in your in your modeling in a way that's just not." not realistic, not responsible. Mm-hmm. 
Sounds like it. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, but we have so much more to discuss. So, folks, don't go away. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. News. 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 Opinion. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all join us. And just in case you've only just joined us, let me let you know what we've been up to so far. Um, Richard Heinberg is our guest today, and he's a senior fellow of the Post Carbon Institute. He has written several books, essays, and articles. Uh, Those articles have appeared in publications like Reuters, uh, Wall Street Journal. He's also been interviewed for... um, Time Magazine, the Associated Press, he's been on Good Morning America, and so much more. Um, And if you've seen Leonardo DiCaprio's uh, film, 11th Hour, Richard is also featured in that um, as well. So we are so happy to have you on, Richard. And we've been talking about the Jacobson Report, the Clack Report. And I also want to talk about the essay that you wrote regarding this controversy between these two esteemed groups of scientists who are kind of battling it out about, you know, what our transition to renewable energy should look like. You wrote an essay in July of this year to address this controversy, and you write that both sides of the debate are completely missing half of the equation. So my question to you, Richard, is what half of the equation are they missing? Help us understand that. Right. Well, 
What I think most of the participants in the energy debates um, miss is the uh, necessity, not just the opportunity, but the necessity of reducing our total energy demand. Um, we, especially in the industrialized world and especially in countries like the United States, uh, have gotten used to using energy on a scale that is you know, completely unprecedented in human history. And of course, uh, there are reasons for that. You know, we, we want economic growth. We like all our uh, gadgets and labor-saving devices and, and so on, and all of those use energy. So we've, we've built up to this level of energy usage over decades and decades. But I think it's important that we step back and, and understand, you know, just what is what's required for this. Um, it's not just a question of um, of climate change. Yes, we need to get off of fossil fuels because they they produce greenhouse gas and gases and they change the climate. But also, fossil fuels are inherently limited sources of energy. These are non-renewable resources that we're extracting and burning once and for all. So uh, sooner or later, we're going to have to find some other uh, energy regime. And frankly, I think the critics of all of these energy sources, whether it's solar, wind, nuclear, bioenergy, they all have good points. There really aren't perfect energy sources out there that have no environmental impacts and that are abundant and cheap. All of our energy choices in the future are going to have trade-offs, and some of them will be very serious. And the only way to keep those trade-offs from being so serious as to, you know, really uh, impinge on uh, our uh, our having a future is to reduce our energy usage. Uh, if we, if we could do that, then it would be much easier to engineer and to afford energy sources that, that are actually available. Mm-hmm. And I know that there are so many people out there who spend their entire careers and, and all day working on energy efficiency and energy conservation issues. And I know that they're nodding their heads you know, vehemently up right. and down as they hear you say that. And I know you and a colleague wrote a book entitled Our Renewable Future, and that was in part uh, you know, a reaction to the Jacobson Report. So talk to us about what you believe a transition to all or nearly all renewable energy would involve. Yeah. Well, first of all, my, my co-author um, of that book is uh, David Fridley, who's on the energy analysis team at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. And in the 20 years or so that I've been writing about energy, David is uh, probably the most knowledgeable and level-headed of all of the energy experts I've, I've come across. So I was really thrilled to have the opportunity to work with him on this this project. And so we we looked at the, the prospects for a transition to all renewable energy. And uh, one of the first uh, problems we we devoted ourselves to to trying to understand and solve was the fact that 80% of the energy we use is not in the form of electricity. Uh, solar and wind do produce electricity, as does nuclear power. But most of the energy that we use 
is in the form of liquid or gaseous fuels for the purposes of transportation, industrial heat, and, and heating buildings, and, and so on. So right there, that you know, even if we transitioned all of our electricity to solar and wind, that would leave 80% of our current energy usage that, that is still coming from fossil fuels. So how do we account for that other 80%? Uh, that's that's not a small problem. Uh, there are a couple of different pathways. One is to uh, electrify as much as we can, say electric cars and so on, but that's not a, uh, a full solution. Uh, nobody's talking about electric passenger planes uh, on any scale uh, because the batteries would just be too heavy. The things couldn't take off the ground. Um, it, for industrial heat, uh, also, it's it's... Uh, impractical to use electricity directly because it's it's too expensive. Mm-hmm. So the, there there are pathways for getting there. You could produce high heat with uh, with solar power focused with mirrors, but it would be intermittent. And for some purposes, like making cement and and doing uh, metallurgy, uh, you really need constant sources of high heat over um, uh, days and weeks and months at a time. Uh, you can you can use electricity to produce fuels, uh, including hydrogen, but other other fuels as well. But then you have the inter- the inefficiencies of of um, of uh, changing from one energy to another. So altogether, we we found that you know there's there's no easy answer. Um, the the more uh, sources you have that aren't intermittent that you can use to back up solar and wind, the better. For example, geothermal power is very good in that regard, but it's source limited. There's only so much uh, opportunity for increasing geothermal power, the same with hydro, uh, certainly the same with bioenergy. So what we found was if you could uh, decrease the size of the total energy system, it becomes, as I said earlier, much easier to engineer and much easier to afford. So really, if we, if we want to have an energy future, the first thing we should be doing is thinking about how to downsize our demand. And, and let's talk about that because your essay describes a realistic energy future. Um, and, and it mentions doing things or, or not doing things that we currently do, like traveling and commercial aircraft. And I know for a lot of people, including myself, that's really hard to imagine <laughs> um, yeah. for, for work uh, because families, you know, migrate and, and that's how we see each other. So, you know, what steps in your mind would be required for Americans to voluntarily uh, adopt this lifestyle change? Give us some idea about the path that you envision. Well, first of all, I think it's important for us to understand that some of, of these changes are going to happen no matter what we do. Commercial aviation, for example, um, uh, we really don't see much of a future for commercial aviation beyond, say, 20 years from now or so, uh, no matter what we do, because it's, it's, uh, as it is, it's reliant on oil, which is, again, a depleting resource. Um, but 
any of the transition pathways, whether it's uh, hydrogen or biofuels or synthetic fuels made using electricity from, from renewables, all of those are significantly more expensive than the current oil-based kerosene fuels that we use when we fly um, commercially. So, you know, one way or another, the commercial aviation industry is in for downsizing. So, uh, we should be thinking right now, okay, how do we make the most of that? Um, and how do we uh, substitute for commercial air travel? Should we be building more high-speed rail, for example, that, that can be electrified? That would be a sensible uh, long-range plan. Um, the, the less sensible approach would be just to wait until you know market forces... Uh, um, downsize the, the commercial aviation industry for us. And, and at that point, we wouldn't really have any options because it takes a while to build infrastructure such as high-speed rail. So if we, if we want to have that, we should be starting now. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's, you know, it seems self-evident to me that some of the hardware, some of the infrastructure that we need um, you know, will end up being manufactured and powered by fossil fuels. And so it seems to me that in this finite, you know, uh, supply that we have of fossil fuels, some of it needs to be dedicated to the transition infrastructure and the transition hardware that we that we need to move to. And even for those who, you know, may have difficulty wrapping their head around climate change, you know, that that's you know, that's their personal situation. But, I mean, we can all agree that fossil fuels are finite. So even taking climate change out of the equation, um, we have a situation where we have to transition just simply because the supply is finite. <laughs> At some point, right. we run out of it. And that's so, right. um, you know, I, 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 it's amazing. And I realize why politicians aren't talking about this. That's not the stuff that gets you reelected. But, um, (laughs) you know, I'm curious as to what you think the average citizen might do to to influence this, because it will take, you know, whether we like it or not, politics uh, to create the public policy around this. Well, we can make individual life choices that uh, reduce our energy consumption, living closer to where we work and shop or to family and friends so that, so that we don't have to get in a car using more public transportation, bicycling, walking, uh, insulating our homes, uh, 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 putting solar panels on the roof and, and using uh, solar hot water. Uh, these are things that my wife and I have been doing, you know, for the last 20 years. We, uh, and so I, you know, I, I know that all of these things work using solar cookers during the summer. Um, if you have a, a backyard growing some veggies there, you know, there, there are lots of ways we can reduce our reliance on, you know, the high energy lifestyle that, uh, that, that most Americans are, assume is just the normal way to live. Mm-hmm. And well, I want to go into more detail on that in our, our next segment. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we'll have much more with Richard Heinberg. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. 
VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio, and I'm always so happy that you all tune in. I love to get your emails and tweets um, responding to what we're talking about on the show, so keep it up. I also want to remind all of our listeners that Go Green Radio is just one portion of a much larger movement. Um, in 2002, I started a nonprofit organization called the Go Green Initiative. We work with schools across the U.S. in all 50 states and in 73 countries around the world, helping schools do two things. One, conserve natural resources for future generations. And number two, protecting children's health from environmental pollutants. So if you'd like to get involved with that, check out our website at gogreeninitiative.org. We'd love to have you on our on our team. Um, we have been talking about a couple of scientific reports uh, that have been kind of going at it over renewable energy and our future in that. Um, we've been talking about the Jacobson report and the Clack report. And um, our expert on the show today, Richard Heinberg, has been helping us break this down. Richard, for everyday Americans... Talk to us about how this conflict between the Jacobson report and the Clack report might potentially impact our lives. You know, sometimes we forget how much public policy and, and debates in the political sphere can really come home uh, and affect our everyday lives. How do you see this controversy playing out for the everyday American? Well, uh, our energy future is is really important. <laughs> energy is everything. Without energy, we have no economy. And right now, we have an energy economy based on fossil fuels, and it really doesn't have much of a future uh, because fossil fuels are finite and depleting, and also because they're they're changing the climate. So we know we need a different energy economy in the future. 
and the the uh, best candidates we have right now for replacing fossil fuels are solar and wind. Um, the authors of the Clack Report are in favor of more solar and wind. They're not uh, they're they're not solar and wind haters. But I think their their critique of the Jacobson um, work underscores that there's no free lunch here. Um, we would all like to have an energy future in which, you know, we're, we're all living in Disneyland and our every wish is immediately fulfilled by technology, but that's just not realistic. We live on a finite planet with finite resources and producing energy always involves trade-offs. So what I think we need to understand is that our, our energy future is going to be complicated, uh, and it's something that we need to pay attention to. Uh, it has political and economic and engineering aspects that are all very contentious and, um, and, and that will impact our lives going forward. Uh, so making the choices in our own lives about what energy we use and how much energy we use is very important. I think there's also, uh, you know, besides our own energy consumption individually, and I am 110% behind you in uh, making sure that people understand ways that they can reduce their energy consumption in their own lives. But I think that there are so many other roles for everyday Americans to play in helping our country transition to a more sustainable energy system, whether it's being involved in public policy or even career choices. I mean, a lot of our listeners are high school and college students who want to be part of making the world a better place. And maybe there's a certain, you know, line of, of education they should be pursuing. What are some other roles that we can play if we want to be part of this successful transition? I think one of the most important things, especially for young people who are looking toward a future, maybe in engineering, for example, is looking for ways to meet basic human needs. The things we all need, food, uh, housing, uh, transportation, and so on, meeting those needs with an absolute minimum of energy. Uh, and this is something a lot of people have been thinking about for a while. You know, the kinds of of technological solutions that are might be available in very poor countries. Um, for example, for for lighting, uh, using small LED lights with a with a little solar pack on them to replace um, uh, kerosene lamps that are you know produce, produce a lot of soot and they're dangerous and so on. That's a very simple and cheap technological solution to a basic human problem. Uh, we need more of those kinds of solutions. And uh, frankly, a lot fewer of the kinds of solutions that we've been uh, coming up with in the in the uh, industrialized world over the past few decades, which are you know high energy and in looking for maximum speed and and uh, maximum scale, that's that's not our energy future. Our energy future is, I think, going to be one that's more localized, one that's that's far more thrifty, and one that that really looks to what we actually need, what makes us happy as human beings, what what gives us the best quality of life as opposed to simply, you know, building up the, the portfolios of, of big corporations. 
Mm-hmm. And I think you said a mouthful when you said that some of these solutions are going to be localized. And here's why I say that. You know, I've really been thinking about ever since, you know, what happened in Flint, Michigan and other places where water's been polluted. And unless you get water from a well, and some Americans do, but most Americans get their water from a municipal water supply, which requires energy to transport it, to clean it, all of that, you know, and I think that what's really important for especially young people to realize is that if they want to be involved in ensuring that clean water and, you know, all these very basic human needs are met, the place to get involved is local politics because that's where the public policy that will keep our water clean, keep our energy, you know, coming to us reliably, uh, keep all these systems in place are very likely to happen at a much smaller level than what you'll see on CNN. <laughs> and so I, I love that you said that, Richard, because I think that's one of the most exciting opportunities besides some of the engineering paths that you mentioned be, is for you know young people to be involved in local public policy and to learn how it all works because I think you're right. That's where a lot of the solutions will lie. Um, for, for our listeners who are business leaders who are kind of trying to read the tea leaves on what kind of energy they should invest in to power their manufacturing and logistics and operations, what action should they take based on this? Well, you know, we, we need a lot of research and development, not just in things like energy storage. There's, that, that gets a, a lot of press these days. Uh, um, Elon Musk developing new batteries. You're, you're always going to see that in Fortune magazine and, and so on. But what isn't being invested nearly enough in is um, alternative ways of uh, industrial processes. Uh, you mentioned uh, water systems, purifying water and, and, and so on. How do we do these things with less energy and using electricity rather than fossil fuels? Something like um, road building, for example. Right now, we use, uh, we use concrete and we use asphalt, and those require enormous amounts of energy and fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. How do we build roads without fossil fuels? Uh, not many people are looking at that. Uh, I so could go true, on and Richard. on. Uh, and I the, wish we could. And unfortunately, yeah. we are we are out of time. And I wish we had another hour to have you on, Richard. We're going to have to have you back on again soon. Thank you for being with us. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. We love to have you guys on board. We're going to be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. And until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.